What's up, Daw Nation? My name's Wyatt Troy, and I want to welcome you to episode 47.5 of Behind the Daw, where we usually interview music producers, artists, music industry experts, and people of that nature on an emotional, philosophical, artistic, and music business basis. But as you notice, this is a 0.5 episode, which means we took the audio from our YouTube series in the Daw, and we put it in a podcast form so that you could partake of it on the go and get that perfect combination of emotional and technical knowledge. So who are we interviewing this week? This week, we are interviewing AU5. That's right. For the third time on In The Daw, we have brought AU5. He's going to break down his song, Only In A Dream, that was released on Monster Cat. What can you expect to learn from this episode? You're going to learn advanced bass sound design. You're going to learn about how to get a vocal to sit perfectly in a bass mix, how to utilize and create bass jams, and you're going to learn about advanced drop music theory. And Daw Nation, we're going to talk about all this and even more when we get back from thanking our sponsor. Donation, imagine if you could learn extremely innovative sound design from a legend. Imagine five and a half hours of mind-blowing in-depth videos explaining and exploring every detail on how to get the craziest sounds that no one else is making. Imagine walking away with all the effects racks, instrument racks, and project files that was handcrafted by someone that has producer credits with Monster Cat, BT, Infected Mushroom, Virtual Riot, Elenium, Seven Lions, Ausla, and so many others. Now imagine all of that power being at your fingertips just a few minutes from now. Well, Daw Nation, what I just explained actually exists. The In The Daw team collaborated with AU5, the sound design legend himself, to create the AU5 Ableton Sound Design course. Again, as I mentioned, it includes five and a half hours of videos illustrating the most innovative sound design techniques, all the instrument racks, effects racks, project files, and we've even included a full walkthrough and breakdown of AU5's newest EP, Energize. Right now, we're running a $50 off discount for the course, but this is a limited time offer. So I would hop on it right now. But if you're not quite sure if it's what you want, then make sure to check out the free mini AU5 Ableton Sound Design course. This way you can get your feet wet and see the types of sounds that you could be making today. There are links in the description for both the full course and mini course, or you can just go to courses.inthedaw.net to get more information. Again, that is courses.inthedaw.net. But Daw Nation, let's get into this week's interview. I want to welcome everyone to this week of In The Daw. Once again, for the third time, we have Austin Collins, also known as AU5. How are you doing today, man? Hey, I'm doing great, man. Excited to do this once again. We're so stoked to have you back on, and especially out of all the songs that we've had you do on In The Daw, all of them have their virtues, all of them have their beauties, but this one by far is my favorite. We have a beautiful, beautiful announcement before we get into today's episode. In The Daw and AU5 just put out a new course. It is an Ableton sound design course. We should you how to make absolutely insane sounds, different processes, really unique stuff, only using Ableton devices. You're not going to get it anywhere else. It's absolutely fantastic. Again, link in the description. AU5, do you have anything you want to say about our course before we get into the episode? I think it's going to be a really exciting thing to share with people just how much you can really do with the, the default devices that you that Ableton comes with. Uh, and yeah, I'm really excited to, to share all these uh, secrets and, and stuff. It comes with a lot of instrument racks, effects racks, uh, some bonus material. Uh, we go through drum synthesis, uh, bass design, different effects racks that will help in mixing and also sound design. Very uh, multi-purpose stuff, as well as a full walkthrough of my Energize EP. I take you 
through energize and activate uh, the entire song, all the sounds, how I make everything, how I made everything, and my approach to uh, the composition. I can attest to this. We have spent months on this, putting it together. It really is just like if you finally want to at least see half of the potential that Ableton has to finally, you know, strip back all the VSTs that everyone gets, strip back all the, you know, the the over-publicized things that they say you need to be able to make really good music and actually understand the pure and untapped power of Ableton. This course, this course is for you. Again, like he said, there's a bunch, there's even a bunch of bonus material that comes with it with all the racks and we walk through his EP. I'm telling you guys, like right now, I would highly encourage you to go get it. It is going to jump up to the original price very soon. Go, it is the link in the description. Go check it out. But let's get into today's episode. There was a vocoder layer in the vocal stem that I got. And that's sort of what I used as reference for the chord progression in the rise pre-chorus part. But what I ended up doing was sequencing in new MIDI using the dry vocal stem. I had him send me the the non-vocoded vocal stem um, so I could do my own voc- vocoder stuff just so it mixed a little bit better and was a little bit fuller. The lead is, uh, is just this. These are the MIDI notes. Sounds really lame, but when you combine them with the vocoder, It's pretty simple what I'm doing. I'm, I'm using uh, just a simple serum patch, a little bit of noise, this noisy saw. Everyone's been asking me like, what skin is that? Someone saw it on Instagram and then everyone's talking about it. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a skin that I made. I may release it in the future along with some other goodies. Yeah, it's basically just a super saw. What I do is you make a new track with the vocal that you want to vocode on it, throw the vocoder on it, and then use, go to carrier and set the carrier to external. The audio from your chords or from your MIDI instrument that you want to use as the carrier did he already have it all processed and everything and then you just did little minor things when when he sent it over he did no it was it was all processed and compressed and uh affected out and it sounded amazing and i think that was kind of the catalyst to like for me to it kind of, yeah it set the theme it set the mood and the vibe of what kind of song I wanted. If it was just a you know, purely dry acapella, I would probably do some cool stuff with it too. I don't think it would turn into the same kind of song that it is now. Yeah, it was a very interesting situation, very specific, very specific circumstances that allowed all this to like fall together so quickly. Is there anything in this kind of like right where this vocal comes in? Besides the vocoder, is there anything else that is of your doing in this section? Using this little. <laughs> VEC loop, <laughs> breakbeat loop. But yeah, all this is Nitrix, and I do have a little riser thing here. Oh, it's just chimes. And then this is my instrumentation. The pulsing tremolo style thing is that evoked through an auto pan? I believe so. I've learned. I've learned right there. Auto pan. When this hits, to get this really atmospheric vocals, vocal effect. So I'm doing some uh, low pass filtering, good amount of reverb, and then, yeah, not too much other stuff, but the, the main thing is the auto pan. What, what I did in this case, so I set it to 1 16th notes. To get it on the beat, I noticed that what I have to do when you're, in, when you're using the sine wave LFO, or the, I guess the triangle wave LFO, is to set the offset around like 200 to 270. That's kind of like the perceived effect of the downbeat, like halfway when the wave starts to sweep upward is when it, you feel, it feels like the downbeat. Otherwise it kind of sounds out of sync. But then what I did to make it actually 
s like I, it kind of has the stereo effect. I just offset the phase by 60 degrees. So basically your right channel is, is hitting first and then the left channel is hitting first. So it's almost like this like fluttering effect. So it's not completely in phase, slightly. slightly. Okay. Yeah. So this is if it was in phase. Although the stereo from the reverb is kind of already making it wide. But um, if I turn that down. You can hear that there's a difference. Oh yeah, so I'm, I'm also using frequency shifters, 50% approximately, and that is to create that phasing effect. So one frequency shifter is cool, you know, it creates that like upward infinite phaser sound. But adding a second one kind of breaks up the inconsistency and it, it kind of phasiness kind of phases with itself. And then I'm using a uh, Voxengo Sonoformer, which is a, it's supposed to be like a mastering plugin. It's basically like a 32 band. It's like a, a spectral multiband compressor. And I'm just using it to like tame the high end. Spikes. They're so present and so loud, and along with all the other stuff, like the sibilance, it's, I'm basically using it as like a de taming some harshness. These pads... It's actually super simple. They're just two supersols, one an octave higher than the other, and then a, a phaser on it. Some ping-pong delay, uh, low-pass filter opening, you know, EQ, a little EQ rebalancing, some more reverb, and that's it. Like. It sounds so lush with just that simplicity. Uh, and then this piano I'm using. Alicia's Keys Contact. But what I do to get that really big effect is I'll use Valhalla Room, some low cut, because there's actually like a lot of bass in piano. Versus. It makes a huge difference, especially when you're mid-side OTTing at the end. Yeah, so I like to put the ping-pong delay in the end of the hollow room before like the multiband compression, and the reason why is because it just sustains better. I feel like the actual articulation of the notes is cuts through the reverb, but then once the once the actual note decays naturally, the reverb kind of takes over and is is kind of like a sustain. By the way, guys, the mid-side OTT we talk all about it in our course that is just releasing. If you guys are interested in learning more about the mid-side OTT, make sure to check out our course link in the description. This is the this is the good part. This is where people start waking up. <laughs> and where my CPU starts going to sleep. This is kind of a thing that I took from another song of mine that's unreleased. Um, it's a, a trance song. Basically, I'm just using the Icon Has Kick Wavetable to get, um, you know, that dispersed saw thick sound. These are just creating really short plucks. And then I'm using the flanger filter tuned with the note modulator to the note that I'm playing, just really high resonance, and that's where the actual note is coming from. So if I change the if I change the position of this, it's gonna be like it's gonna transpose the whole thing. I just use um, the rock amp for that. That's just extra thickness. And then I'm using a um, really narrow bandpass for this atmospheric section here. So kind of reflecting what the vocals are doing with the auto pan and then i also have just a, kind of like a a low bass like basically just a sub drone over top of that because 
It's, it's actually legato. It's not stuttering. Yeah, this doesn't actually, this top bass, the stuttery bass, doesn't have any sub in it. So the transchords. So yeah, this is basically just the same, the same patch as the pads, except I'm using an envelope, or sorry, an LFO as an envelope to create the, um, the plucks. And I'm also using something that I don't really do often, but I really noticed uh, was necessary for, for, for this. <clears throat> I have my amplitude sustain set to uh, like minus, minus five dB about. Usually I just have it like this, and I, I know a lot of other people also have it just like that, but what ends up happening is like, here, but it sounds too consistent. Like there's no dynamics to it. Like the lower that you have your sustain level for your amplitude, the more it's going to sound like it's punching, even when the filter is totally open. If the filter is totally open like this, you can't really hear where the notes are restarting, especially in the context of other instrumentation. So if you bring the, the sustain down, you'll actually get an, a, an amplitude attack. In this case, what you want, because otherwise it'll just sound like a big legato sounding pad that doesn't have any note articulation. So, And yeah, it's plucking without any filter uh, modulation, which I think is pretty cool. So then, yeah, I put a ping pong delay on there, the same EQ to rebalance it. Uh, and then, yeah, another mid-side OTT. And then the second half of this pre-chorus, um, I have the these square pops. You'll be able to see it's literally just a square wave. Little bit of noise. The AC hum noise is off, like the amp is off. You're not actually hearing that. What you're hearing is the coarse tuning of oscillator one being modulated by the waveform of the noise. Without it, it's actually a totally different pitch because <laughs> I guess it has some DC offset in it or something. Noise oscillator, destination, coarse pitch. Uh, and then I just tweaked it so it fit the, the key. And then Valhalla Room. And then OTT. One full. And then the band pass. And I just think that's a really cool, different kind of sounding layer compared to the other sounds. Everything is nice and smooth, but this is, this kind of comes in as just like, all right, here's some grit. I feel like it could totally function as like a hard style lead if it was not something that was being arpeggiated um, and sustained out. <laughs> and I'm just using a really short gate on the arpeggiator to get that effect. So I think my CPU is going to start being nicer at this point. I'm taking the vocal at the end of what he, what he says, what he says right there, and then I cut it, I just loop a quarter note. And of course there's other stuff going on. That's all it is. And then with just a really strong resonant high pass, um, some Saturn that's uh, making those high frequencies crispier. And then some auto pan, uh, and that's that's what's creating that like transition, that transitional effect for the vocals. Because the, the top the top voice is reverbing out and delaying out, and then this is like coming back in, introducing the the tonic essentially. It's tonifying the part and basically t making the rise uh, even a more of, of efficient bridge between the melodic stuff and what's about to come. Yeah, these drums. 
a simple 909 snare sample. I'm just using velocity, or I'm using the arpeggiator to articulate the velocity. So without it, I'm really just, these are just whole notes. Uh, and this is one way to make really cool rises, really easy, like fill rises uh, really quickly, is just, yeah, use an arpeggiator and take advantage of the velocity and re-trigger modes. I feel like that's overlooked. Like, I, I don't really hear anyone talking about that. But basically, yeah, if I turn velocity off and re-trigger off, it's just going to be super static you turn velocity on turn retrigger on what happens is or you have to set your target velocity basically what that means is i'm holding out a note for um a, a full bar here the arpeggiator is arpeggiating arpeggiating it at 16th notes using this velocity decay and target i get to choose uh, over the course of the, your decay time in this case 237 milliseconds i want whatever velocity this note is playing in the midi to over the course of 237 milliseconds to get to a velocity value of 13. Um, that can be useful for rises. It could also be useful for um, basically crescendos and um, diminuendos of the notes, which means, you know, getting louder progressively or getting quieter progressively, respectively. So in this case, what I did, I'm using a pretty high velocity of 100 and then I'm bringing it down to 13 over the course of 270 something milliseconds. And without the re-trigger mode, it's only going to re-trigger every time I play the note. Like every time it re-triggers the note. Yeah, if you turn re-trigger mode to beat, what ends up happening is you can choose the duration of your arpeggiator re-triggering. In this case, uh, I want to do quarter notes. Every quarter note, I want it to sweep down. Influences the retrigger on your velocity parameters here. So I could do three sixteenth notes and get like a um, basically like a three over four feel. One of the one of the one of the one of the all of the subdivisions. Um, so yeah, that's that's a cool way to just make fills real fast and then just automate some of these parameters. Like in this case, uh, I automated the decay, the velocity decay. So it's just really loud right here. I could just take full advantage of the actual filter articulation that I'm using in the EQ. Uh, and I'm also using a frequency shifter. Basically just increase the the fundamental frequency of the snare. Uh, it's, it's something that I use to retune drums a lot. If people haven't seen my other videos and tutorials about like how how important I find the frequency shifter is to retune drums. And then yeah, just a little reverb and compression to top that off. There's really nothing that special happening with the rise. I have a I have two MIDI no, um, noise lifters. So this one is uh it's operator it's basically two oscillators in parallel to us uh and then both of those are oscillators in series b is going into a d is going into c and then these are pretty much just arbitrary values that i that i put in the course the course tuning and the reason why is just because i wanted to get it pretty metallic and i didn't want it to sound harmonic obviously it's, a, it's supposed to be like a metallic downlifter not interfering with other you know harmonic content so it's really just that and you put reverb on it and then it's like, whoa. And then with the noise lifter, it's even simpler. I'm just using white noise, stereo white noise. And then I'm just using a bandpass filter to, uh, with a macro to modulate this, um, this sweep down and up. And combined together, it does a lot. There's a lot of cool stuff that you can do just from using those simple techniques. I feel like risers are really important. Like the frequency ranges that you use and like how pitch and filter curves are over the course of different parts. Like they seem like such a background thing, but they're, I feel like they're, they're like a very important integral subconscious influence of 
anticipating the release of tension or creating it, creating tension, basically. That brings us to the drop, and that's probably the most, this is probably going to be the most interesting part. So obviously the, the, the downbeat doesn't have anything on it. It's just, it's just the vocal. I found these cool glitch sounds. I'm, I'm doing something to them. I think I stretched them out a bit. Yeah, and re I retuned them. But this one is from a pack that is it's called Richard Divine Mechanical Morphs. And there's some really, really cool stuff in there. Like, I guess just playing the... Like, that's all that is. And then this thing, I don't really know what this is from. I think it might be from Motion uh, Motion Pulse Pack. It's like cinematic Foley and stuff. But yeah, I just, I, I really started digging the, the whole like Foley glitching into the first snare. I did that in uh, Activate as well. If you guys want to see Activate, the walkthrough through Activate, it actually comes with the course that we were just putting out. It's actually a bonus in the course. So uh, if you want to check out that EP walkthrough, it's on there exclusively. Both tracks, sorry. Both of them, yeah. The same trance chords uh, that I'm using before, I'm using for these chords here. And this is where it's important that I use the the sustain attenuation like with the amplitude envelope because otherwise this would just sound like a solid pad. It wouldn't actually have that driving eighth note feel. So this bass is actually sounds a lot uglier than it than it does in in context with the other sounds. It's a serum. This is a wavetable that I resampled from Razor. It's the multi-mode filter on bandpass mode. I could turn some of this stuff up too. So that's basically all it sounds like. I really like the harmonics that it was resonate that were that were resonating through it. Uh, I'm also using some asymmetrical warp just to make it sound tighter near the end of that near the end of the envelope. And then some multiband distortion, and then uh, some dimension expander. And then when I crush that through an amp, um, I have it on rock mode. If I have it on 100 percent. It's just way too crispy. I like to mix them to dry it into the wet. Um, and so these are really, these EQs are mostly just for taking out those nasty mid-rangey frequencies around like 200 um, and 3K. Uh, and then I'm just doing like a low cut because I just supplement this with just an operator sub. Sometimes what I like to do with the operator sub as a layer, sometimes it's too pure as because it's just a sine wave. So I'll set the second oscillator B to basically an octave higher, setting the course to two, and then just bring up the level a little bit. And what that does, you can't really hear it, but you can kind of see it on this spectrum here. Like if I start to bring it up, it starts to introduce like second order harmonics, yeah, which are basically odd harmonics. So it's basically like a rounded square wave. And that's what that's what I think is pretty useful for, for sub because if you don't have speakers that have a good sub response, having just a couple of those really quiet harmonics of the sub, you know, you have a sub that's like 50 hertz, the 150th hertz harmonic of that is going to give you an impression of a louder sub even though it's playing a fifth an octave higher than the sub your brain is going to recognize that as that's supposed to be a sub then i have this little siren thing right here which i really like to use as, as um as layers if i turn everything off you'll be able to hear how annoying it really is <laughs> it's just basically a saw wave, a little bit of the, the first harmonic uh, attenuated because I wanted it, wanted it to be a little squarey sounding. Then I use a frequency shifter uh, for the first the first quarter note. Just kind of like sweep it up. It's a little bit of low pass filtering and then Valhalla rim to... And when it crashes to happen on every half note, 
but I wanted them to get progressively like softer until the next crash came around. And I wanted it to be stereo too. So I was like, instead of just making a bunch of different tracks and like figuring out what sounds best, I just put a, I just put a really long delay on the whole thing. So as far as the actual kick and snare, and this is a very old sample that I that I made. I don't recall actually how I made it. I believe I used a combination of like uh, an attack from some sample pack kick, and then I used bassism. It's basically like the precursor to kick the kick plugin. It's it's a it's the kick synthesizer, and so I just kind of combined those two, and I think that's where it came from. I've been using this thud trance kick since like 2014. I think that's when I, I think that's when I made it. Yeah, sometimes it just works really well. I mean, in this case, <laughs> I'm doing some EQing, some overdrive. Without it, it sounds pretty basic. It sounds trancier and cleaner, but I kind of wanted that like slap to it. Uh, and so the waveform after all the processing looks like this. It's really not that big of a kick. A lot of my kicks now are like just basically just blocks. There's no, no little dip here. This kind of worked it seemed appropriate for the song. Uh, the snare now. So I took this snare from the Iska remix of that Patrick Reza song, Take Me Away. I really love that song. And I thought the snare was crazy because it was such a deep sounding snare. Basically, you can use any like short, deep, kind of deepish snare. Uh, and then the real meat obviously comes from the the tail. This is the snare that I made for Closer without the, uh, the other snare. It would have sounded like this. which I don't really think is as appropriate. It just doesn't, it doesn't have that beef. Uh, I could pitch it down, but I wanted, it didn't have a crispness that, um, that this other snare had. And then I also have this um, Awaken snare. Definitely bridges the, the low mid body and the, the high mid tail. And then how I'm actually, how I'm making it like really punch is I'm, I have a glue compressor after everything. I'm using the, the initial thud part of the snare to sidechain and compress the, the tail just so it, I'm, I'm just to make sure that it perfectly fits. Uh, and then I just top the whole thing off with the soft, just soft clip really. Just to catch the peaks, it's basically just a limiter. The ride is from a pack. I didn't really do much to it. There's some of this stuff though. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. I want that. Unfortunately, I can't really go as deep as I want with this because this is from this is just audio that I'm affecting from a bass jam that I that I did. If you don't if you don't already know, I like to basically just open up a new session and just start doing sound design and but I'm also I'm also resampling and recording the whole thing on a different track, on an audio track. And then what I do is like when I'm done messing with sound design, I'll just save the whole thing out as like in this case it's a five and a half minute I call it a bass design jam. And I throw that in a folder of other bass design jams. And uh, this is something that I really like to do lately because I already know what kind of sounds I have that I made in a folder. If I'm composing, if I don't want to get distracted composing by getting distracted with sound design, I can just go into that folder, find one thing, and then just start scrubbing through, scrubbing through bases. And something that you could do is, that's really cool is like, all you need to do, here's this, here's one sound right here. Let's say I don't like that sound, but I, I want to like find something else in that huge file in the, within the clip. Uh, but I don't want to move the clip around. Like I don't want to. I don't want to have to do this sort of thing, and then bring it back. I think that's absolute waste of time. I think in Ableton 10 there's an even easier way to do it. But I'm in nine, so anyone using nine, this is how I do it. 
So you want to turn warp on if you if you don't already have it on. Turn on loop. And what what's going to end up happening is make sure that your loop marker or your loop constraint is uh, is as wide as possible, and that your end your end marker is also as wide as possible. And what what happens now is like because you have loop on, this clip is not going to extend out to infinity. Now you can just move the start marker. You're I'm actually scrub. It's kind of hard to see because the waveform kind of looks the same, but I'm scrubbing through the waveform in this single clip. And so like I can just find cool stuff like that and it stays in beat. And uh, that's the same process that I use for doing vocal chops as well. Yeah, and so these basses here, these are just different sounds that I found in this one stem and then I am doing uh, quite a bit of quite a bit of post but it's it's mostly just like filter um filter articulations so a combination of so I have this little guy with just this peak moving around just to kind of accentuate some harmonics that are already in there without it uh, I have a sub crossover so I can make sure that my my sub is really nice and saturated I'm using a sine fold um, on the saturator Midside OTT without it. It's pretty. It's pretty lame without it. That midside OTT is just so so good. Again, if you want it, it we're going to talk about it in our course. Make sure to check out our course. Glue compressor just for taming the highs, and then this multi filter is uh, something that I I use extensively. It's basically two auto filters uh, with basically pretty high resonance. I disable the filter once you know once the cutoff is as low as possible, and that is to completely eliminate any. Phase, or well, first of all, saves, saves on CPU barely. It prevents any phase distortion happening in the in the low frequencies or even in the high frequencies when you uh, when you have your cutoff set all the way up. Like even though this is the, like the lowest frequency that I can go to at 26, you're it's still messing up the sub. Like I wouldn't, you would not want this to be like that over top of you know uh, your base your base group because it's just gonna blur it's just gonna mess up the phase relationship of your bases everything's gonna start sounding like looser and and sloppier and muddier especially if you're doing processing after that like saturation and stuff you're gonna start you're gonna start to get like all of these like muddy tails in the sub and and like the low end if you're not using a even if you are using a um, a linear phase uh, EQ. Uh, I would suggest bypass your EQs and your uh, your filters when they're not in use, just for that reason. In this bass jam, what what were you playing with during this bass jam? Like, how did you get the sounds that you did? So that's a, that's an interesting question. I don't even remember when I made this. I'm pretty sure what most of this actually is, from what I recall is just an extensive obscene amount of comb filters and phasers and serum like it was it was all in serum i was using like a bunch of unison detune with uh basically just saw waves or maybe square waves i remember i was using the negative comb filter on one of the filters and then the positive comb filter on the other filter and then i was using the phaser as well basically i, I just throw a bunch of a bunch of different parameters on one modulator just start having fun while I'm recording and you get some pretty cool stuff. And you're just having fun. You're just recording. You're just seeing what comes out, right? You're just... Yeah, I'm just I'm just exploring, man. Like, I have no intent to make any song or anything when I'm doing that. And I find that the best stuff comes out of that. When I want to sound design, commit to just sound design and nothing else. I agree. I love having dedicated sessions. It's when you have the crossover sessions where, like, the potential for things to get messy is so... Ugh. Absolutely. What, what am I Not, supposed to be working on? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I should... Uh, I don't know. I don't know. The choice paralysis. I'm still affected by that, but in this this song was a perfect case where the composition kind of was took the lead, so I didn't really have to worry about sound design until afterwards. And also, 
you know, for certain instances like this where I'm just using audio. Yeah, you'll see in the next section, a lot of it is, it's simpler than you think. And this bass, right, little, little bass guy right here is from, um, I, I believe it's, yeah, el my elemental pack. And also what I'm doing, some of these, uh, I'm just transposing this. So this laser bass jam, I believe was in A, maybe? So that's one of the original sounds in it. So that sounds like D. Yeah, it's, that was a laser based jam in, in D. And since I'm using like different warp algorithms and since they're happening so short, I can totally just transpose and I like to stretch things where it seems necessary to. Yeah, I just have a lot of fun with that. So like these are also the... I also have this little glissando here. Which is just a minor pentatonic scale, I think. Maybe with some with some ninths in there. Yeah, there's some ninths in there. I like pentatonic minor pentatonic, which is like one, three, four, five, seven. And then I like to add the the ninth or the second note in there. It's just it's basically just minor without the six. It works good over uh, pretty much anything. I just like to solo in, in that in that scale a lot. Alright, so here's the next section. Oh yeah. Oh, this is audio, but it's a combination of two things that I made. These bases actually went through a significant amount of iterations. You could hear chime decided to use this uh, a work in progress version of this song in his uh, featherweight mix I believe that's what it's called um, and you can hear that it's a different bass sound because I gave him an early whip and he decided to use that in there but I was like it's not strong enough like it needs to be at least Fields of Grey or stronger <laughs> Fields of Grey remix uh, so that was sort of the influence I, I tried a different I tried a couple of different basses this bass real quick is from you know I I can't even tell you where this was from either. I think it might be... I, I cleaned a lot of stuff up because this was a really messy, really messy project. But I'm pretty sure these are just like sine waves and operator just hard clipping and then using some uh, some redux to get the, the metallic-iness. But anyway, yeah, these basses. So this is a combination of a few things. This is a sound that is from a song on my album. It's undisclosed and will remain undisclosed until we disclose it. Uh, a razor layer. So this is kind of like the top end glossiness of it. And then this other one, which was also made in razor, is kind of just like the meat of it. So combined, it's like the grit and then also like the lasery glossiness. As you can see, this did go through a lot of iterations. So uh, I tried out a bunch of different things. I had this one sound. I originally started out, originally it started out sounding, I think like this. Yeah, this is a razor wave table that I resampled in Serum. I was trying to get like the kind of the comb peak effect, like the same kind of like falling down or like ramp up movement that it has with some more crunch to it. But ultimately I just ended up choosing, yeah. choosing to actually use an instance of Razor. So yeah, I'm using the Comb Peak as well as um, Pitch Bend and the Formant. Without that square wave. Yeah. 
So that's that's basically that, using some dimension expander and stuff to, uh, to widen it up. Yeah, that combined with this. And then this is also the Serum Laser Bass Jam audio with some filter automation and some, some auto pan. And yeah, this sound again. This is just the, the bass from the first part of the drop. I believe it's the same one, yeah. And also, I'm having, I have some chords going over top of here, as well as the square pops. Oh yeah, I wanted to mention, so I am using these, I'm using this thing called a phase morpher that I, that I made. It's really, it's pretty crazy. It is just a lot of low pass filters that are stacked on top of each other. Here, let me bring this down. So you can see it is eight, 48 decibel per octave slopes, so whatever 8 times 48 is, you're getting an extremely, extremely steep slope, as you can, as you can hear. It's almost like plucky sounding. Like it has like, uh, has like a ring, and it's like, choo, 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 choo. you can hear the, the, uh, the phase rotation in there. And so because you're stacking all these audio filters, your phases are gonna get extremely distorted and rotated to the point where when you um, mix it back in with the dry signal, that phase rotation, it's effectively creating a phaser. So my philosophy of creating this was to create my own phaser, uh, an, an extreme one and see what it would sound like. And so I did that by, I know that you get a lot of phase rotation from using really steep high pass filtering. I know that you would use a lot of, you get a lot of phase rotation from using really steep low pass filtering. Um, combining the two together obviously is gonna give you a very, it's gonna give you a full spectrum sound with really messed up phase coherency. So as you can hear, it's like, it sounds totally different than this. Like you can hear like this the the sweepiness in it. When you combine that with dry signal, you're basically creating what a phaser does. It's it's because certain frequency ranges are delayed from each other because of the phase rotation. You're going to get um basically phase cancellation when those frequencies are out of phase. So here's what it sounds with the cutoff all the way up. Obviously, there's no audible frequencies up there, so the phase rotation is non-existent. Basically, it's effectively off. But once I start bringing this down, you'll be able to hear some pretty cool comb filtering effects. At first it'll sound like a flanger, and then it will start to sound like a phaser. Yeah, and that's just from EQs. There's no other effects, <laughs> it's just EQs. Uh, and so yeah, I'm using some automation um, just to do this kind of articulation right here. And also here too. And these are just little bits of basses that are from, uh, I think, yeah, some of these are from other songs, bass stems from my album, actually. They sound kind of ridiculous and messy, but like, I really like to do, I really like to just like, it would be called hocketing the basses during like turnarounds where it needs more rhythmic movement. And so it just turned into that. So this little glitchy stuff that I'm doing here is actually I'm using a plugin called I, I Wish. wish. By <laughs> I knew it. Yeah. 
by Polyverse, uh, yeah. made by Infected Mushroom. Super cool plugin. I've I've been using it for years here and there. Basically, it's like a simplified version of Stutter Edit, except what it does is it takes MIDI, which in this case I called it Glitch Triggers. So every time a MIDI note plays, I have this routed to the actual plugin. So I think the plugin is is at the very end of this Razor main bass stem. So this is this is just a blank MIDI track. I am just routing it to the Razor layer track and then to the iWish plugin within the Razor within the Razor layer track. Without that, it doesn't sound as interesting. It's going to sound like this. But with just a couple MIDI notes to trigger this iWish plugin, you can get some really cool uh, effects. Like if I move these around, like I had some other notes in there just to experiment. If I move these around, like you'll hear what else it could do. Dude. I've had I Wish for like a year and I haven't played around with it like this. Yeah, so you can just. So it's cool. You can like you can play melodies in this MIDI trigger track, and it will glitch the audio to the frequency of the notes that you're playing, which I think is a, it's such a simple but brilliant effect. And I'm really glad those guys did that. Yeah. Then the next section is pretty much like the f the first part of the drop. You know, it's just a little bit lighter with some different chord articulation. The three over four beat. Down, 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 down. Don't, 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 instead of just like dead, 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 eighth notes. And I also have this, this old breakbeat loop over the whole thing. So it, this has to do with more of your, your heavier drop that you have. The, the, the second part of the drop is heavier. And I want to know how you melodically compose the drop, but not the melodic part of the drop. So for example, whenever I'm creating like a drop and I'm putting in my bases, I'm sound, sound designing my bases and all that kind of stuff, I am I'm extremely tempted just to stay on the tonic, just to have my bases playing the tonic. And I like anytime I try and play any other notes or anything like that, I'm like, oh, I don't, it just doesn't feel right. It just doesn't know. So how do you... Because obviously your your drops are melodic. When when so how just how? What I do first is I establish the chord progression for basically the whole song, the motific harmonic progression, and because that comes first, uh, when it's time to do a tonic drop, it's just kind of like playtime for me. It's just like all right, let's just go, let's just stick to one note. Uh, but what I like to do though, and this is pretty consistent through like pretty much all of my dubstep that has any tonic parts to it, is um, I will basically take the chord progression and use that in certain areas. For instance, this is the entire ton uh, tonic drop right here. It's uh, 16 bars long. And just just so the listeners understand, what what do you mean by tonic drop? I know, but what if, if people don't know what that means, what does that mean? So tonic means the home base note of the song. It's basically the starting note of your most of the time, it's the starting note of your chord progression. It is the note that it, that defines the root key of your key signature. So in this case, it's D minor. Basically, I'm just taking that one, that one chord, the the first, the downbeat chord, and I'm just using that bass note. 
and I'm just put, tuning all of my basses to just that. That is, that's what I mean by tonic. That's the, that's the tonal center of the song. I think I'm understanding what you're saying as far as like your structure of this. So in the tonic drop is what you're saying is most of the basses in the tonic drop are playing the tonic. They're playing the, the first note, but then you have little instances of the other, like little, little, little notes popping out here and there being played by other elements and stuff like that, that are in your chord progression. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. They're the same chords that I'm using in the, or in the melodic part of the drop. Sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll rearrange them a little bit. Like this isn't exactly the same thing that I'm playing in the same place over here. Um, it's, it's hard to explain like what my motive is. I think it's just cause like a lot of the original dubstep that I heard did this and that kind of kind of stuck with me. Uh, I, I do it in almost all my songs, uh, but basically my, my arrangement is something along the lines of four bars and at the end of the fourth bar, I'll have a half note that is a different note. And then the next bar is basically the same thing until the last entire bar to into the last two half notes. And then I'll do a more extensive turnaround. So for instance, this is tonic. <laughs> one note it's just d yeah and so for this first turnaround which is just kind of like a getting ready to reset the same phrase the same tonic phrase basically the same as this so this is playing a minor seventh which is you know a whole step down from the tonic its corresponding major chord uh, and then yeah the same thing happens again and then instead of it having uh, instead of it uh, the turn, the next turnaround hitting on the snare or the last half note, I have it on the the last bar, so it's hitting on the kick and the snare. And basically, if I shorten if I shortened all of this to just this is the same as this. This is seven. This is going six, seven, and then down, back down to one. And I don't know. I, th I think it's just a more wholesome arrangement. It just keeps the it keeps it interesting. It breaks up the monotony. It also keeps it harmonically pleasing to hear. Like it's just makes more sense. And then I basically do the same thing with a, some variation in the in the tonic parts. And then at the the very last part, in this case two bars, an even more extensive turnaround. In this case I'm just dropping out all of the instruments. And then bring it back with the original progression for the very end of the, the the last bar, and then that will that just naturally transitions into that initial progression because it's the tail end of that progression anyway. So it's gonna it's gonna lead into it perfectly. It's pretty simple, at least at least in my opinion. I guess it's just also because it's something that I've just I'm so used to doing, I'm so used to hearing. That's just how I conceptualize most drops in my head. If there's a chord progression that is heavily established earlier in the song, 99% sure that I'm going to be introducing that in a tonic part of the song, if there's yeah. a tonic, if there's a tonic part. So yeah, so in your drop, you know, you do have, it's kind of like you have, you have your two main elements, which is the melodic parts and your, and your sound design parts. In the first part of the drop, the melodic parts are the ones that are taking front stage. Bass design is kind of taking, you know, kind of a backseat. And then in the second part of the drop, they switch right so i guess my question is would it be too much to have the entire drop where the bass is front and center and only having the melodic parts you know supporting you know what i mean instead of just having a melodic part or instead of having a melodic drop and a sound design drop just having a huge sound design drop do you think that would just be too much like just too like just too intense or what, what do you think it wouldn't necessarily be too intense from a large perspective of the entire song i don't think it would necessarily 
make sense contextually. Yeah, I, I can give you an example. So like like on Arise, right? Arise, the drop is whole bass. It's just, just straight up bass. But Arise is a different vibe than this. That That is true. The, the first part of the Arise drop is, oh, the first two parts of the Arise drop is, is, just ton, is just tonic basses. But at the end of the drop, I do reintroduce the chord progression that I establish in the verse. I'm either doing it one way or the other. I'm either doing it like melodic, tonic, or tonic, melodic, something else after, some, one of those two things. And I, the reason that I'm compelled to do that is I don't want it to be something that sounds like two different songs, I guess. I want it to, I want, I want it to, I want there to be some kind of bridge somewhere. Um, having the tonic drop first is more like a, kind of like a shocker effect. And then having that transition into the melodic is like, ah, oh, okay, we're back, we're back home. Uh, a good example would be Cold Hearted by Seven Lions and um, Kill the Noise. Their first drop is just straight tonic, and then the second drop is melodic, and then the last drop is tonic again. And I think that works really well because they keep the chord progression the same. It's the same four chord progression throughout the whole song, except for the tonic parts of the drop. An example of what we're talking about right now too is Excision in an Elenium song, Gold. Um, there's a there's a melodic part, which is Elenium, and then there's the tonic part, which is Excision. And so I know, yeah, okay, I see exactly what you're saying. I just feel like if, you're, if I'm gonna establish a pretty chord progression, in just the verses, he needs to deserve to have, it deserves to shine like a, a tonic drop does. So I just, I use both. And I am assuming that's also why other artists do it as well. Is it possible to fulfill the melodic and the tonic parts at the same time? Where you have these crazy bass sound designs taking front and stage, but also fulfilling the melodic parts, not just on the turnarounds, but at the same time. Is that too dense? Absolutely, that's that's totally possible. And uh, I think uh, there, I think there are a couple songs where I do that. Like um, my remix for Funk Agenda, High When I'm Sober. There is no tonic drop, but there is a lot of sound design that I would use in a tonic drop, if, if that makes sense. Um, I, what I do hear a lot of artists do is the push-pull method of like heavy bass on the kick, chord on the snare, heavy bass on the kick, chord on the snare, or vice versa. Uh, that's pretty popular. Um, so like like Days to Come by Seven Lions is um, it's a pretty good example. And some of his earlier stuff as well, he does that push-pull kind of thing where it's like there is no tonic drop it has all of the components that you would want to hear in a tonic drop in the melodic drop. Just, just uh, I, I, I call it hocketed. Hocketing is a term that means dividing the same kind of phrases, the same kind of musical phrase between different instruments. So I think of I think of it as like you're hocketing between sound designy focused basses and chord pads when the entire thing is still following like all the basses and the chords they're still following a harmonic progression if that makes sense. They're still following a baseline that moves around. Another question I have for you is something that I got asked the other day is bass cohesion, sound design cohesion. We've all been there when we have, this is a dope sound. This is a dope sound. You really want them to work together, but it's kind of like the sound design equivalent of an arranged marriage and it just sucks. And it's just like, they don't love each other and it just falls apart. And how do you go about getting your bases to fit with each other? You know, you know, like, okay, yeah, this bass does fit in here or no, this bass does not fit in here. You know what I mean? Like, how do you go about that? I think it's half mixing and just half personal taste. And what I mean by that is my approach to it is not really, is not a, necessarily a technical approach, excluding the mixing side. What I mean by that is a lot of the sounds that I choose to use are sounds that complement each other on a synesthetic level. And what I mean by that is like, Sound is really visual to me. Um, a lot of, 
And that's why I like sound design so much. It's because it literally feels like I am sculpting with a different kind of medium. It's like I'm sculpting with clay. I have the option to... The, the shape of it is like the the filter and pitch articulation. Uh, the texture of it is the timbre and the, the type of harmonics that are resonating through it. The color is also very dependent on the, uh, the, the timbre of the sound. So I try to find a balance between different sounds like sounds juxtaposed in the same way that I would find a balance between different elements of visual art, like a visual aesthetic balance of things. I'm trying to find the same equivalent in the in the auditory realm, if that makes sense. It's a very intuitive, non-tangible thing. And explaining it, I don't think is necessarily, I don't think it's something that you can like technically learn from. Although I do think that it's something, I do encourage people to try to become more aware of what it is that they are perceiving other than just the pure sound of something when they're listening to something. I, I've been doing sound design since I was like 13, playing with synths and Logic and GarageBand and stuff like that. And that's where I kind of discovered all of this. Like through that exploration, I became more and more aware of these extra sensory perceptions that I'm getting from listening to sound. Correlating those different effects, those different visual tangible effects, the different actual like audio parameters, like different, like what different waveforms feel like, uh, and also what they sound like, what different filters do. And uh, that just kind of helped me understand like the engineering behind just how signal processing and sound. It's something that, that could benefit people. Using this method though, something that's a little more sound and uh, technical though, is be aware of coherency in sound. And what I mean by coherency is like phase coherency. You can kind of think of something that is very phase coherent as like sharp or solid sounding like a sawtooth wave has perfect phase coherency so a sawtooth wave is a is a very pure sounding wave because it has all of the harmonics in the in the um, harmonic series and it's fate the phases of all of those harmonics are perfectly in phase they're perfectly phase aligned with each other to the point where it creates a, a solid geometric shape, which happens to be a sawtooth. They're just a bunch of sine waves at different frequencies that are layered and added together. But because of phase coherency, they cohere into a coherent looking shape. If you start messing with those uh, phase coherencies, for instance, if you throw a reverb on a saw wave, it totally destroys the phase coherency in the same way that if you take a laser, which is a coherent source of light, um, and shine it at or shine it through like like a lens or on a wall it will diffuse that light like all of the frequencies are still there but there's the phase coherency is destroyed it's just diffused light it's incoherent light after it reflects off of a diffuse surface just like sound becomes incoherent when it reflects off of when it when it diffuses off of diffuse surfaces. So that's what reverb is. When I'm talking about co coherency, you can have coherency in different frequency ranges. So for instance, uh, like a, a distorted electric guitar has, it's a pretty phase incoherent sound. It's a, it's a relatively noisy sound, but that's also what makes it sound big. It's sort of equivalent to like uh, a super saw where just you have a bunch of detuned saws that are playing. It's just this big wall of fuzzy sound, but all of the frequency content is there. So you can still hear what note it is. It's not just pure noise. You don't want that to be the case in the 
well, it depends on the instrument that you're using, but most of the time, you're not gonna wanna mix a guitar and boost sub frequencies in the guitar 200 hertz and below. Usually in a, in a distorted electric guitar, you wanna cut, you wanna low cut everything below around 200 or so because there is too much incoherence in those low frequencies. And low frequencies are especially susceptible to phase incoherence because the waves are larger. It's much easier to perceive something that is out of phase. And that's why you don't want your sub to be, more or less, you don't want your sub to be stereo because of that reason. If you have, uh, most subsystems are mono because when you're playing really low frequencies in like a venue or a room, those frequencies are very susceptible to phase incoherence anyway. They're reflecting off walls and you're getting standing waves and nodes and peaks and troughs throughout the spectrum here and there throughout the room. You want it to be as coherent as possible, especially because it's sub, it's something that you feel. You don't want to feel, it, you don't want it to be noisy, you want it to be solid. When it comes to mid-range stuff, there's definitely more room for incoherencies, and that's kind of what gives it its, like, I guess, liveliness or, like, character, its organicness. When you're dealing with, uh, it depends on the instruments as well. When you're dealing with, when you're dealing with synths and stuff, phase incoherency in the high end isn't really that big of a deal because, your frequencies that you're using, your actual notes that you're using are pretty high. The actual harmonic coherency that you're hearing, not phase coherency, the actual, like what the notes that you're hearing, um, they're pretty coherent. And so for instance, like a, like a trance lead, it's just a, a high pitch super saw. That's fine, there doesn't really need to be any phase coherence in the top end. But when you're dealing with bass though, that's where things get tricky uh, because and that's also where things get very subjective too. A lot of basses that I, that I make and that I work with have a balance of incoherencies in the high frequencies and coherency and incoherency, depending on the sound. I like to juxtapose those things. So for instance, like, like, a, like a saw bass or something that's really tight has co phase coherency in the treble range. And then there are other basses that sound really morphy and, and growly and they're less coherent. If you're going to have, if you're going to juxtapose different sounds that have different phase coherencies, then I would suggest focusing more so on making sure the actual frequency balance, the tonal balance of the entire, of the entire phrase of those different sounds is even. One of the, one, I mean, an easy way to do that is just putting, you know, using a multiband compressor on the group. I don't necessarily like to like to encourage people to use multiband compression for as as mix tools, uh, more so sound design tools. And I feel I feel like in this case, this is sort of the middle ground. If you compress something hard enough, like if you multiband compress different sounds hard enough, they're going to start to sound the same. So I mean, that is one tool that you can use. Another thing is using different fundamental bass sounds and using a single filter among all of them. So you're basically modulating them as a whole. That's another way to do that. And then I th I feel like the the rest is just like as, as for, for mix as far as mixing goes is uh just making sure nothing is louder than anything else. Like making make sure your subs are all hitting at the same same amplitude. Um make sure your treble isn't like peaking. Make sure you're not extensively clipping your tracks. I mean, if you are, sometimes it's totally fine. And also the type of synthesis, I guess that's also another thing, the type of synthesis that you're using. If you're using like all additive synths or all subtractive synths, chances are you're going to 
have a more cohesive sound, um, or if you're just using additive synthesis, it's going to have that similar character. With these basses, for instance, I'm using, this is like the same bass stem. It's a very long bass stem. There's a lot of different sounds in there, but <clears throat> it's synthesized from the same thing. It's just, it's one instance of serum. I'm just just altering a bunch of different comb filters and, and filters and stuff on just a super saw, really. And I think that's kind of lent itself to the cohesion of the sound design in this in this tonic drop at least and then i have some other things that don't that kind of break up the the cohesiveness but i think because they're rhythmically intentionally placed they they work like these little bit bases right here so you know have that and then that rut they're, they don't really take away from anything because they're they're not the main focus they're just intermittent things that kind of enhance the groove of you know what i'm what's already established. You know, like when a vocalist sends you a vocal like this, how do you go about creating the song around it with the vocal in mind as far as as far as frequencies? Because what I've noticed is when I already have a vocal and then I try and create an arrangement around that, it literally feels like I'm just putting the vocal on top of the song. It doesn't feel like it's a part of the song. And it just feels like I just just kind of dropped it right on top. You know what I mean? So how do you how do you how do you how? I know what you mean. Um to like give a very specific answer to that it, it is case by case because i do hear that and that is a, it is a result of different things for example for this song there are a couple things that i'm doing that kind of tackle that issue and prevent that from happening it's because um main issues that are the results that result in the vocals sounding like they're not meshed well is there isn't proper frequency masking so i personally like to write to, I find writing to a vocal acapella more intuitive than writing a song and then trying to mix a vocal into the song after I already wrote the song. And the reason why is because a lot of times I have extra instrumentation that I'm going to have to omit or just do extensive mixed stuff to make sure the vocal fits and isn't getting drowned out or conflicted. It wasn't that difficult. One thing to, to keep in mind that's important is spectral masking. So what I want to do, for instance, something that, I, that I'll do, and I could probably even enhance this a little bit better, is on the spectrum, check out where your vocals are resonating the most. So what I mean by that is to actually to, to mix the vocals on their own is is a whole nother thing. You don't want anything that's like sharp or sticking out. If you need to use a de-esser to catch the sibilance, use it. It's a little bit of multiband compression just to keep things tame. You don't want to use something that I, I hear a lot with people for producers that aren't necessarily that experienced with working with vocal vocals are um, the, the low end where the fundamental frequencies are are too dynamic or just too loud or too quiet altogether. So like like that's too much. That's too thin, but it's done it won't sound as bad in the mix because what you're mostly hearing is higher order harmonics in the context of like a like a big drop or something that has like a lot of bass or something that's just sounds harmon um harmonically full I guess or uh, spectrally full the the real meat of the vocals in those sections comes from kind of higher order harmonics around the 1k range so if I boost this
Like that's where most of the vowel articulation comes from. And it's not even really necessary to have that much fundamental frequency stuff going on down here. It, though it is important to make sure that those fundamental frequencies are tamed though, because they can they can vary, they can drastically a lot just from a couple inches, couple inch deviation of uh, where the vocalist is singing uh, in relation to the mic. In drops and choruses and stuff where there is a lot of like bass movement and stuff happening and also a lot of treble stuff, um, your vocals are going to be, the most of the articulation, you're going to be hearing it around the 1K to 3K range. So it's important to make sure that everything in there is nice and, and tamed, but also clear. So when you boost that, um, you know, it's there's nothing too harsh coming up. But to make that fit in with the rest of the instrumentation, something that you can utilize, uh, this is just for example, and then I want to boost like a little bit of something here. Um, so now the vocals. Which actually doesn't sound that bad. Some, something real simple that you could do is just take this EQ um, and then copy it onto your synths or basses group, whatever is most prominently conflicting with it. Throw it on there and then use the scale function to invert that. So you're creating complementary, you're creating an EQ mask, complementary EQing. Are you serious? It's that simple? That's how it's done. You just scale minus whatever usually i'll do like minus 50 or something i don't need it i don't i don't want it to be that accentuated because like if I, if I cut out too much it's just gonna sound like it's gonna it's gonna kill some of that some of that energy so do you have that automated so that eq only comes on when the vocals come in or do you just have it on all the time what, what right now this is just a demonstration of like a lot of times what i'll do um there are two other methods that i'm gonna show you yeah what i would do is when the vocals aren't playing uh, I will either bypass this EQ or uh, just automate this. I'll just automate it to zero. So that's one way to do it. But since you're since it's a static EQ, it's not a dynamic EQ. There's not you know it's there is limitations. It's a it's a very transparent way to do it, but it requires a little bit more metering and 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 ear training to really get that properly dialed in. The second method I want to talk about is what I initially did and that is using a multiband compressor as a side chainer so what I mean by that is for the synth bus uh, I have a multiband dynamics on there it's currently bypassed because I use a different method which I'll which I'll show you as well what you want to do is just yeah throw a multiband dynamics on there and then turn on the side chain you want to hit this little open up the little side chain section you want to turn that on and then you're going to route it the same way you would route an instrument to your kick drum to sidechain compress that. We're using a multiband compressor though, so we don't have to worry about dialing in, we don't have to worry about um, sidechain filtering to, to like filter out the highs of your cymbals to prevent them from ducking if you're doing sidechain compression, which is really cool because I, I find that this it's it simplifies everything and it makes things much more intuitive. So when you turn on sidechain and then set your track that you want to, um, that you want to be the sidechain trigger to actually to duck whatever it is that you are um, that you're trying to attenuate. All you need to worry about now is just the frequency bands that are conflicting. So in this case, the treble isn't really a, is a, isn't really a conflict, but this mid band here is. So. They're really similar in frequency range, in frequency content. They'll they're going to conflict without the mid though. Like if I just solo the bass, there's not really much going on, but the highs. 
obviously that's crucial. You don't want everything to be sounding like it's low pass when the vocal is coming through. So for the mid band, really all you gotta do is just bring the ratio you just start bringing up the ratio and by dragging down it's kind of hard to hear or it's kind of hard to see because of my uh the color scheme that i'm using but once you start bringing this down you'll see that like if i solo this and start bringing this down every time the vocal is playing it's going to reduce the volume of this frequency band. And what it's doing is it's taking the it's taking the incoming vocal, filtering it through this frequency band and then using that frequency band as the attenuation, which is really cool because that means no matter, you know, I have three different bands, they're all going to be compressing differently because the vocal has differences in treble and mid-range and you know it's not just it's not just a single band that it's using otherwise you know it would basically just be a single band compressor with a different threshold for the treble and and or with with different ratios for the treble and bass frequencies it's it's contouring the entire in this case the synths group to the vocal and making room for it so that's one way to make space transparently without having to use automations so that brings me to the last method and that is it's sort of a combination of these two things but i'm using a third-party plugin which i highly recommend it's pretty inexpensive i think i got this for 40 or 50 dollars it's called Track Spacer. It is effectively the same thing that the multiband dynamics is doing here, except with except spectrally. It's like band independent. I think it has like 32 bands or something. Yeah, basically what you do is you take a sidechain input, uh, a sidechain signal, and how I'm doing this because you know this is an Ableton plugin, and I can't just like open up this little this little triangle thing and be like, oh yeah, here's my sidechain track that I want to use as the sidechain input. So what I what you have to do, you kind of have to do it, kind of have to do it the other way around. So you have to create a track. In this case, I called it a TS routing for track spacer routing. And what I'm doing is I am. It's just a blank audio track. It's just a. It's just to reroute a uh, track into the plugin. So the input is the lead vox track, and then the output is I want to select the group or track that has track spacer on it or whatever plugin you're trying to get a sidechain signal to. Uh, in this case, the synths, and then underneath that there will be a list of plugins in this case there's only one since there's this is the only one that can uh, that can take a uh, sidechain input so it defaults to uh it defaults to that uh it's kind of cut off but it says sidechain l slash track spacer i don't really know what that means but yeah it's it's saying that it's this sidechain input for this plugin track spacer what you want to do though is make sure that your because it's just a rerouting track it's not actually no audio is going to the master from it you're, it's not doubling but what you need to do you need to make sure that you have your uh, monitoring set to in so it will always take the audio that is coming from the other track even without record arm on I, uh, if i solo this yeah you're not going to be able to hear it um, but when the lead vox is playing you'll see that there's a signal going through there and so what that's doing, it's going to uh, track spacer, and when I'm playing, you will be able to see the actual signal through track spacer. And really, what all you got to do is just, you know, fine tune your your low cut and your high cut. You want to constrain it to wherever the conflicting frequencies are. Uh, and when I'm when I play it. I 
So you can see it's basically doing the same thing that the multiband compressor is, but much more contoured to the vocal. This is basically like the inverted vocoder, uh, if they're if Ableton had one. But it's cool, because you can do a lot of cool stuff. It has uh, left-right biasing, uh, mid-side biasing, so you can cut the mids more than the sides, uh, preserve the harmonics, or the spectrum of the sides more on whatever track, or the, the mids more. You have attack and release settings, you also have sidechain monitoring, and then yeah, your amount, and you can also freeze it too to see like how much. So now that that's, I can actually hear how much is being cut out in different sections. Uh, I, I don't really find that very useful, but um, it's pretty sensitive and uh, it works really well. I'm so glad I got this because on my LP, all of my songs were originally instrumentals and I, got, I have vocalists for all of the songs, except the very last one. I didn't want to comp I didn't want to take away a lot of my lead elements because I wanted vocals to, to come through and, and, and sit well. So I used track spacer and you can hear everything. So I wish, yeah, I wish is awesome, um, as we discussed before. So basically, the reason I have two MIDI tracks is because one of the I wishes is affecting the Razor main track, and then the other one is affecting the Razor layer track, which is, uh, so yeah, one is affecting this, and then the other is affecting this. They're of the same notes, though. But the reason why I do that is because I can't route one MIDI track to two separate plugins. Probably could with using an external instrument, but actually, I probably could. Let's try that. Yeah, so an external instrument, Ableton sees as an instrument rack, which is fine because it just routes the non-existent audio to the group, but that's okay because since we're using external instrument, we can route the MIDI to any track we want. So I create an instrument rack. One is going to Razor main, I wish, and then the other is going to Razor layer, I wish. So I'm gonna I'm gonna be controlling all the bases just with one MIDI track. We don't need this guy anymore. So let's see. So that works. So. Yeah, without these notes, it sounds kind of bland. It just sounds like... Uh, but if I start messing with these notes, like adding some extras, I could do some really cool stuff. I can even stretch these notes out and see what happens. And when you use really low notes, it almost it works as like a beat repeat effect because it's like super low frequency. Or really high notes. Uh, but the real the real fun happens when you use an arpeggiator. So I'm gonna make this uh, the note D, and then I'm gonna throw an arpeggiator on here. This is also really cool, pretty much for anything, uh, but for for vocals like robotic sounding vocals. So I'm gonna set the gate to 99, and I'm gonna set the rate to sixteenth uh, notes, and let's just see what this sounds like. That's cool. Uh, I could change the step size so it will uh, actually like arpeggiate octaves for the bass. Let's see what this does. I'm gonna adjust the. I'm gonna set the rate to free and then automate the rate. There you go. Little little bass bits.
So yeah, I mean, crazy complex bases just from procedural grain freezing with a arpeggiator and I wish. And you should totally get it and support the Infected Mushroom guys and Polyverse because they're, they're doing some brilliant stuff. If you were still working on this song today, what new sound design techniques would you be incorporating in this song? Multiband vocoding the vocoder? That's what I'd do. I would definitely do that. I would definitely be vocoding basses with other basses. And if you guys want to learn more about that, it's in our course. It's really, really good. I would probably be utilizing actually a lot of more of the the effects that we cover in our course, to be completely honest. Like the multiband saturator, I think I could make stuff in here sound even beastlier using that thing, as well as the comb screamer. Utilizing the sampler more for those, for a lot of those like resampled bases, do more experimental stuff using um, pitch and FM um, or using sampler, which we talk about in our course. I think one of the things that really resonated with you when we were recording the course was like learning to repurpose the material that you already have into creating something holistically new at the same time like you know like in our course we were talking about like vocoding the vocoders where it's like you know you're you're vocoding two bases to each other or maybe even three or four bases to each other right but they're they're all your bases at the same time they're bases from different songs right but they're all coming back together to create something new taking the granulator and throwing one of your songs in and messing just mangling the crap out of it and then repurposing those things uh yes 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 i don't know if we went over in the course we may have but i can demonstrate using this space I'm going to try to. So, so yeah, using grain delay as a way to get more harmonics and just largeness to the sound. If you find the frequency of the, the note that you're playing, so in this case, D, so it's 37 hertz. So what I would do is, this might sound a little weird because this bass clip is pitching down. I'm going to type in 37 hertz into the frequency of the grain delay. So now I'm going to set from sync to time mode. And then when I start to change the pitch of these grains, they're going to re-pitch every 37, you know, 37 times a second, which matches the note of the actual bass. So it's basically a formant shifter at that point. And you can uh, change the delay time somewhat to just get broader effects and also increase some, some feedback. That's a cool trick that I that I learned late last year. Hey, you five, did you have a good time today? Oh, I had an amazing time. This is Thank you so much again for having me on the show. It's a good experience. Thank you. Hey, Daw Nation, hope you enjoyed this podcast version of AU5's episode of In the Daw, where he broke down only in a dream. If you're interested in the AU5 Ableton Sound Design course or the free mini AU5 Ableton Sound Design course, make sure to check out the links in the description or go to courses.inthedaw.net. That is courses.inthedaw.net. Again, make sure to like, comment, subscribe, repost, follow, you know, whatever is appropriate on the platform that you're listening on, like iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Deezer, SoundCloud, YouTube. It doesn't matter where you're at. It just helps us know that we're moving in the direction that you need us to. Finally, I would highly encourage you to check out the last episode of Behind the Daw. That episode was with Lexi from Echoes, the wisdom, the knowledge. I can't speak highly enough of that episode. The response to that episode has just been beautiful so make sure to check that out but Dawn Nation have a great day and we'll see you on the next episode